Previously on Storyological. <laughs> you run away from the wrong, and you try to head towards the right, and you just end up in a tight place. What place is that? And that place is called Conflict. Conflict, Alabama. Conflict. Is it, or is it called Constipation? I can't tell. <laughs> it's quite similar. Each morning, I, <laughs> I like to eat a bowl of Conflict. <laughs> this is Storyological. A podcast about amazing stories. That we kind of like. I'm Chris Camerud. And I'm E.G. Kosh. Uh, my pick for this week is Love by Yuri Olesha. It is a story from 1928. I discovered it in a book called Worlds Apart, an anthology of Russian fantasy and science fiction, which was edited by uh, Alexander Levitsky. And I found this book in the British Library. Yay, British Library! Good British Library. It's like somebody designed heaven, where you can go to a building and say, pick any book ever published in the country and say, bring it! And they will deliver it to your desk. Amazing. This story, love, is like the self-aware man's angry and bewildered guide to falling in love. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Because the way the story goes is really a very self-aware step-by-step description of your feelings as you descend into love. And these stages are marked clearly. There is the feeling that you're having unnecessary thoughts, the feelings that you're being taken over, that you're becoming some kind of an eclectic. There's a shift in your perception. You're beginning to see things that aren't there. And angry as well. There's a, there's a, the, the, this character, this man is very frustrated about mm-hmm. all of these changes happening to the way he perceives the world. And it is in that struggle between his falling in love and his very rigorously detailed understanding of his loss of a material, rational reality. His struggle with that is what powers the story. And I imagine there is lots that we, we might discuss in terms of it being a Soviet writer writing in the 1920s about the clash between love and sentimentalism and a kind of material reality. Uh, But that's the story. And I was in love, as I often am, with a story that is enraptured in the sentiment of romance and also fighting it as hard as it can because Mm. it allows it is literally the heart in conflict with itself. Yeah, it's literally made, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And made it's, into it's, words. Its reluctance is what allows it to go into an honest excess. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. It's that reluctance that allows him to dig into himself and and find those specifics that are making him so angry. I, I thought a lot about. I'm reading uh, Nausea at the moment, John Paul Sartre, and uh, what's the main guy's name? Romanoff is that? Rokinton. Antoine, I believe, Rokinton. When he stoops down to pick up a piece of paper and we we get this blow-by-blow account of his mental processes as he takes that in and understands what it means and doesn't mean and it's essential meaninglessness. And and this guy, Shovelov, which also made me laugh, I was like, was Shovelov his original name in the original story or have they translated a pun so that we get it in English. I wondered the exact same thing. And I allowed myself to think that if in English somebody's name was Georgia Moore, 
yeah that we might get it and so maybe maybe they didn't translate it but either way yeah shove a love (laughs) perfect yeah i'm shoving love away from me and then taking it into my heart because because in his pain and and resentment he is forced to examine it because that's the kind of uh, philosophy that he holds dear like Mm. this idea of examination and understanding and he is caught on this fulcrum between fatalism and idealism and and i guess you know up until this point he has been a fatalist as so many russian authors and characters and uh, stereotypes are and yet he complains in this story something stupid is happening I'm beginning to think in images. Laws no longer exist for me. In this spot, five years from now, an apricot tree will have grown up. Entirely possible. That would be completely scientific. But, in defiance of all natural laws, I have seen that tree five years ahead of time. It's stupid. I'm turning into an idealist. And I loved that moment, that flick of understanding where he was having to move from from this fatalism to this sense of hope and joy that the future might hold and how his love for Layla has is bringing him to that spot yeah yeah never never have I seen hope fought against so (laughs) charmingly really um I charming because that that kind of statement something stupid is happening and then his repeated chorus I'm seeing things that aren't there I'm seeing things that aren't there lines such as when he really notices for the first time the thorax of a bug and the way it fluoresces Mm-hmm. He says, damn, another half an hour and I'll turn into a naturalist. <laughs> so much resentment. He'll have dreams about flying. He'll have dreams where, God, when I read this the second time, I totally forgot about Isaac Newton, who shows up <laughs> in the story. And yeah, he might be dreaming. But in a way, as much as he laments love, you can feel kind of sense the author's point of view. Because all of this damning that he does is in a sense from his point of view from the character's point of view a sense that he's seeing things that aren't real Mm -hmm. and yet you can sense from the author the things that he sees such as at the very beginning where he says the flight path architecture of birds flies and beetles was invisible but one could still somehow make out dotted lines the shapes of arches of bridges towers terraces a kind of swiftly mutating and second-by-second disintegrating city. Now, it's true, that city's not there, but the things that the character sees feels entirely like they are enriching life, and he is trying to force himself to not see them. Yeah, yeah. Now, I was listening to you, and I forgot what point I wanted to make. Yeah, that was a completely new thought I had, too. I had a, a thing to build on what you said, and then this thing came into my head. Okay, you go ahead and build on that, and then I'll say my next thing. This story reminded me, we watched uh, an episode of Crash Course Philosophy a few days ago, and it was on the morality of beliefs. Mm -hmm. And it talked about a guy named W.K. Clifford, who was really into uh, epistemic, epistemic responsibility. And he had this famous quote, it is wrong always and everywhere for anyone to believe anything upon insufficient evidence. And it reminded me of this story because in a way, it feels like what you were talking about, about the philosophy that this character has to engage and challenge non-material thoughts, 
is is something like this. Like it is morally wrong to allow mm-hmm. yourself to, as happens to him in the story, to lift off, lift away from the earth into some different realm of senses. You you must stay in contact with the earth. That's why I love that there is literally a place where the character, again, much to his sorrow, he got up, dressed, remaining attached to earth with difficulty. Terrestrial gravity no longer existed. And that's and it's part of why it's so perfect that he encounters Newton. But when I saw he was going to you know, when he was having this interaction with Newton, I laughed my head off because to me, it pointed at this kind of hilarious self-obsession of an intellectual in love, thinking that no one else can possibly ever have really understood what it is like to be in love before and to see the things that he is seeing. Like he is the, uh, the first person to be able to articulate it. And that was what I took from him having these kind of conversations with Newton, like Newton is now looking up to him, asking him about gravity because he is the person who is seeing life for what it truly is. I got that that Newton was there in a dreamy kind of rebuke, both a spokesman for science to be like, what are you doing? Didn't you just fly? Don't you know what the laws are? But also in its own way is a rebuke of science because Newton is rendered very similarly to the earlier character in the story that we'll come back to in a second, who is colorblind. Because Newton mm-hmm. shows up with these dark blue glasses <laughs> and this black hat, and he seems a bit ridiculous. And I <laughs> yes. love that the, the story brings in a kind of ridiculousness from science too, because lest we forget, Isaac Newton was a bit of an alchemist and was fairly... Right. He, not all of his ideas were as significant as the ones that have lasted. I think you're right. There are many ways in which you could read Newton. And one of the things that I loved about this story is how much space it leaves for you to fill in your own excitement. It's like it's like a trampoline. There's so much packed into there and so much energy that you can bounce off it in almost any direction. Like at one point, he's really angry with this guy that he meets in the garden. And he says, you're just like a violinist, like apropos of nothing. And in any other hands, maybe that would seem weird and like a non sequitur. But because of the energy in each sentence and each phrase here, I could totally imagine this whole world in which one of his neighbors is a violinist and practices at really inconsiderate times. Or or maybe he lost a previous lover to a violinist. And so therefore, violinist has become his primary insult for people. You know, any of those things is possible. And you feel free to make it up as you want and and not feel cheated that it's not in the text but also feel excited that it pushes your brain into interesting places one of the spaces i went to um was in thinking of it in terms of marxist philosophy in terms of thinking of what has come down to us about what communist architecture was meant to was meant to represent uh, which was gray functional blocks. Uh, and th- that character that he's so upset with for, it turns out, not being a violinist, uh, is a man who is colorblind. And it's set up that the man, this this colorblind man is a foil to the man that's falling in love because the colorblind man says, yes, I do see everything quite accurately, mm-hmm. um, except for certain details of color. 
that is ultimately confronted directly in the story. There's a place where I believe it is Newton who says insultingly to him, were you not flying earlier today, young Marxist? <laughs> and later when he says, when the man that, uh, the man that was flying earlier uh, is, is realizing that he feels like he's in paradise, it's like, no, no, paradise doesn't exist for Marxists. Sorry, too bad. <laughs> Shut it down. Yeah, yeah. And along with all of this, all, all of the space that it gives, all of the, you know, philosophical readings you could take from it, the, uh, two things. One, like you said, the voice is, is so charming and alive that you're pulled along in joy. And also that it, it, its structure is, is, a, is a perfectly efficient sort of story and that there's this struggle going on between love and materialism. And there's a definite point right before the end where he decides, that's it. I'm done with love. Back to mm-hmm. the material world. Mm-hmm. Just to set up the last scene turn where he meets the woman that he's in love with again and the colorblind man arrives and says yeah yeah totally you want to switch yeah i'll give you this get out take my uh colorblindness and i will take your love and he's like no no yeah he tells him to go eat those dark blue pears yeah it's a beautiful encapsulation of that moment when you're in a relationship and you you're at you reach a point where you kind of have to decide are we all in or are we going to kind of back away and, and go off and hide inside our, our previous fears, our previous perceptions of ourselves? Or are we going to accept this new version of reality and work towards making it, uh, making it successful and making it enjoyable? It reminded me of one of my former students asked me a question once in an email. Do you think love is just nature's way of tricking us into reproduction? I believe, you know, I gave my, my normal intellectual romantic response about how many different kinds of love there are that it, it, we've invented on top of that one even if nature did try to trick us um we tricked ourselves into loving iphones so <laughs> not much chance for reproduction there mm-hmm. uh, not yet <laughs> iphone 15 baby maker my pick for this week is The Boy Who Never Cried For Me, which is a narrative non-fiction piece by Juliana Delgado Lopera in Midnight Breakfast. So the, the piece is about Juliana as a young girl and the day, the afternoon when she is leaving Colombia with her family to illegally emigrate to Miami to join her aunts. And she's leaving with her sister and her mum. Yeah, so it's about, it's about this moment of her leaving her home country forever to, to go live in the US and it's really focused around this moment at the airport where she is with her boyfriend and desperate for her boyfriend to cry because in her mind at this age of 15 years old that is what will demonstrate his love for her and essentially her validity as a human being and the reality of this moment as the kind of life-changing moment that it seems like she knows and feels it is but is somehow unable to express or emote this herself and so instead we get this whole piece which is written around why won't why won't her boyfriend cry and how you know how can I make him cry for this moment um it's so you know at no point in the piece does she does she ever say anything as uh direct as you know, I was not able to process my own emotions on this uh, on this momentous occasion that was happening to me. But because we focus 
so much and her desperation for her boyfriend to cry and how her 15 school friends were crying so much they looked like their faces were covered in mucus and how a later conversation with both her mother and her sister really focuses in on the crying. You know, we're left in no doubt about her need and her desire and her want and her inability to to really comprehend what is happening inside of herself as a reaction to this moment. I feel like you do begin to understand the the the, the voice that is telling the story now is coming to those realizations and that's the, the power of narrative releasing those realizations as you, yeah. you put the, the pieces together. Because there are a few moments where you know, the epiphanies that are embedded in the story are about not being able to leave the past behind, which in itself clicks down to the idea of not being able to leave your expectations of who you are or what the world will give you behind. And the thought I had was, just like with people, a way to understand stories is to, yeah, to focus on where they linger, to focus on what they pay attention to. And one of the extended moments in the story is that moment where she is describing being with her boyfriend and wanting a Daniela Romo moment. Mm-hmm. And the paragraph goes into great detail about that moment. The, maybe you read it. I wanted my Daniela Romo moment. I was Daniela Romo. Carajo me. Because que carajo, there's migration and the avianza plane. Que carajo arrives packed in two Samsonite bags, the merengue I wouldn't hear again for two years flowing from the nearby cafeteria. Wilfrido, mi amor, you're only missed in exile. Que carajo, Miami's blow-dried hair hiding our collective sadness and my sister's clueless, glossy eyes. And my other tear, chain-smoking, and some guy I've never seen hugging Miami, kissing her neck. Que carajo, the pieces of ourselves that refuse to leave. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> uh... When I read that, I immediately stopped and lingered. And that line that you ended on is what stuck with me. The, mm-hmm. the feelings that refuse to leave, the dreams that refuse to leave. I love the paradox embedded in this story about how much you can want something can end up masking what is being really offered to you. Because one of the lines that really punched at me was that the story is centered in that moment of wanting her boyfriend to cry, to show how much he loves her, or for her to see how dramatic and beautiful life is. And when she asks her mom in this later time, did you cry? Her mom says, no, you know, I was strong for you. You know, like her not crying was a symbol of love. You know, the section just ends there with the mom saying that. Yeah, and it leaves this paragraph break where you're just like, no, that's not what your daughter wanted. You have... The wrong idea of of how to, in this particular case, of, of what your daughter wants to understand from you. Your daughter wants to understand that emotions are real, not that nothing affects you, no matter what it is. <laughs> well, that's true. Well, yeah, hyper real. Yeah, and I would say, yeah, and, the, and, the, and in this case, the daughter doesn't understand what the mom is saying yeah. by that thing. I, that is, it is that that like, the, came through to me in the, in the story a lot, if... The, the different languages of love that, that each of us speaks. And that part of growing up is learning to hear the foreign tongues of love that are in each other's mouths. Mm, yeah. Hearts, maybe, is a better metaphor there. Except tongues don't live in hearts. Tongues anyway. don't, definitely don't live in hearts. Anyway. Unless, unless you're talking about like the little valve that flaps back and forth in the heart. That's kind of like a tongue. Yeah, leaving and not leaving. And how much can you leave behind and ever start anew? That was 
something in this in this piece that I really enjoyed the examination of like you know it tells you up front that they're going to Miami and this is the promised land that this is this is a migration that will somehow make their lives better but you also get the sense that she doesn't want to go and that she's scared and that the things that her aunts say about Miami the white van the where they live what she experiences with the air conditioning uh, there's a very uh, sad I can't remember the exact phrase but the air conditioning that grows mold on their eyes and the heat that grows scale on their skin and and you just think yeah it doesn't seem like it was the best move um the way you're describing it I'm not sure that was kind of a rabbit hole what I was thinking more about leaving was much like we talked about in Su Lin's story the other day once you emigrate the people in your new country always see that in you that you're not from there and that's part of what she's saying about how you never really leave you know she's taking it with her in the way people perceive her in the barriers that exist between her and the Americans that she sees in Miami and it's both sad because you feel like she feels othered but it is also kind of beautiful to understand and to realize that she is still connected to her home and still connected to something of that person some of the power of that for me was the way in which the story showed how she is othered in all of these different relationships she is othered from the other parts of her family that have already immigrated to Miami and have made a home there. And she's othered from her boyfriend who won't give her the reality that she wants. And I laughed reading the story, knowing that we we're going to talk about it with Yuri's story of love, because mm-hmm. there is a direct moment where she is describing, telling him about love and leaving. And there he is, her boyfriend, biting his pierced lip mumbling some communist shit about love (laughs) because that's the thing is that as while she's quoting to us all of these lines from Daniela Romo all of these moments that she expects and Mm -hmm. believes to be the reality he's quoting to her all of the lines from what he believes about love and revolution which is Mexican revolution and communist revolution you know this is the story that he brings that she's not hearing yeah they're just they're existing in their own stories rather than in one shared story like the, the bits where she's talking about no matter how much America has grown on her, you know, the, 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 the literalness of the air conditioning creating mold on you. It's like you, you can never leave that origin story behind, mm. that original thing that, that held you together, continues to hold you together, that those things that, we pro- that protect us and that create us also separate us. I really loved how close I felt to Juliana after reading this of how honest it felt like she was not sugarcoating her experience or her feelings for us like she wasn't she's not painting herself as the hero or the victim in this piece she is painted as a complex person who is feeling incredibly conflicted and acting out in selfish ways and excited ways and just trying to figure shit out given the the circumstances that she's in and i really love that it felt very touching maybe uh, as a a sign of who i am i felt very close to the character of juliana in the story it didn't <laughs> well, even occur to too. me to think about juliana as a real person 
Because when really? I when I felt that it was when I still thought it was fiction. I didn't realize it was a non-fiction piece at first. And I was like, "Oh wow, this character of Juliana, I'm so close to her." Yeah. And then there was a little bit of me that felt kind of sad when I realized it was non-fiction. Um, That's interesting. Because I don't know. I guess um, expectation to, is important to me when I read something. Like the same thing happened to me the opposite way around when I read. Um, the curious incident of the dog in the nighttime. I don't know how I'd got the impression that this was somehow a book that an autistic boy really had written. Uh, but I thought it was this kind of beautiful account of his exp- of an experience that he'd had. And then I got to the end and read the bit about the author, and I cried <laughs> because I re- really changed my perspective of the story. I'm really in love with the effect. That there was realizations had on you, <laughs> and also very aware that everything I read, I, I kind of have the same expectation of, because I I come at it as as it's as it's fiction, and that is occasionally to my loss. Um, no, anyway, I think I, I think you're right. Oh, I think I, that is a a good way to approach it all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I think it is interesting and almost unanswerable to me. Because this this question of why, when I read this, does it flicker in slightly more short story, fictiony place versus nonfiction? And it feels unanswerable because there is no line between the two. You could write a nonfiction piece like this. You could write a piece of fiction that looked like what you might think is nonfiction. And mm. really, the only place that I I I landed on was the 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 urgency with which the the urgency and timelessness of of this, whether nonfiction or fiction, it just felt so alive. Mm. And I think I tend to have read and felt that in my life far more in short story. It, it, it just like what this story says. It has far more to do with the stories I carry around <laughs> inside of me than the story of this and. Where I ended up in the same way of feeling very close to the narrator is is the the sense of the insistence of its voice, the the strength that whereas I might not feel this way about people all the time, I love stories that insist on their existence, that mm. insist on their emotions, and is so much in the voice to admire here and to love. And there's a a bit where she says, I knew this was my last moment to shine, that after lying about every single Camilo, Diego, Daniel, Roberto, after writing myself love letters and ugly boy handwriting, after tricking my sister into sucking on my neck and after sucking on mangoes and pineapples for hours to convince everyone I was the Miramere queen of dick or whatever, leaving the country forever was the perfect drama-infused opportunity for a boy to declare his love to me, and this was a real bone-flesh boyfriend. What is a voice that is insisting on itself? And extra bonus, extra writer craft, that is what the story is about in its way, is is on insisting Mm -hmm. on your reality and dream and other people insisting on theirs, right? Right. The people that that welcome her into Miami. And not necessarily having much overlap and and that being such a cause of friction and despair. Because it's there at the very beginning when the family welcomes them, the family that is in the U.S., like you said, insisting 
this is Miami, this is paradise, here's our damn white van, get mm-hmm. in it, be happy. Thanks for listening, readers. We have probably not managed to talk about every story in the universe that you have loved or even everything about these stories. So if you want to get in touch and let us know your thoughts, you can hit us up on Twitter. We are at Storyological. I'm getting a look like I was supposed to pause there. <laughs> there's, a, there's a few paces that we often pause in that sentence. but I was just uh, so proud of myself for remembering it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, so keep going. You can hit us up on Twitter. Which is at Storyological. Uh, that's story. Like the word. Oh. Like the letter. And logical. Like Aristotle. Uh, you can follow Emma on Twitter. She is at E.G. Kosh. And you can follow Chris on Twitter. He's at Kuvols. If you want to follow and like us on Facebook, we are there at facebook.com slash storylogical. And for gifts of a appropriate and inappropriate nature and links to everything that we've talked about today, you can find us at our home on the web. Storylogical.com. See you next time. Happy reading. Oh, I thought maybe it was like scratching the inside of your skull, like the top, the kind of... Yeah, scratching the top of your head from the inside of your skull. <laughs> that's, that's what these stories that's do. That's what's called climbing the fifth wall. Yeah. It's something not that many stories ever achieve. Most stories don't even know there are four walls, let alone five. Correct. Yeah. We know that. And that's good sometimes. That's what you want. Yeah, yeah, every once in a while you want a story that pretends as though it's the first time that story's ever been told. I don't know, some people... <laughs> some people don't want that. Complaint. Oh, oh, lo, I watched a TV show and that show <laughs> told a story as though it was the first time that story had ever been told and I did not approve. Sometimes, readers, I... I worry about what is in Chris's heart. It seems like maybe your heart lives in Blade Runner. It's the, the detritus. Mm-hmm. The detritus of, the, of every book you've ever read. I'm um, sure. I was going to go with the wide open, dirty cosmos. The detritus of the wide open, dirty cosmos. It fills my heart and comes out my eyes as rainbow Sparkling knives cut into the heart of all things, hopefully without killing anyone I care for.